This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Basic Airway Equipment for Intubation by Dr. Tracy Woolbrink. Healthcare workers in all healthcare settings should always adhere to the latest World Health Organization guidelines on hand hygiene and barrier precautions before and after contact with a patient, bodily fluids, or patient surroundings. For more information, please watch our video entitled Hand Hygiene. Hi, my name is Tracy Wilbrink, and I'm a pediatric intensivist at Children's Hospital Boston. In this video, I'll be talking to you about the equipment and supplies that you'll need to get yourself ready to intubate a patient. Oxygen and suction. So the first thing you'll want to make sure is that you have an oxygen source and a bag for your patient. So here I have a self-inflating or self-refilling or AMBU bag, whatever you want to call it. And it's connected to my oxygen source, which I'll turn on here. You'll also want to make sure that you have suction available and that you've turned it on. And you check to make sure that it's working. And I'll leave both of these near the top of my bed so that when we get ready to perform laryngoscopy, those are readily available. The next thing you want to make sure is that you have a mask that's an appropriate size for your patient. So you want to choose a mask that will cover around the nose and mouth, which is not too big, in which you have a lot of leaking either from around your eyes or your chin, or that's too small in that it doesn't adequately cover your nose and mouth. So for this patient, uh, this size mask is probably appropriate. You can see it covers the entire nose and mouth of the patient without going much beyond um, the chin or the eyes. If I were to get a mask that was too large for the patient, you would see that I'd have a difficult time creating a seal because if I make sure that it fits on the chin, there's going to be a lot of leaking near the eyes. And vice versa, if I make it so that it fits near the eyes, there's a lot of leaking here around the chin. It's always better to go with a smaller mask rather than a larger mask. And with this very small mask, you can see, even though it's a bit on the small side, it still mostly covers the mouth and the nose. So if you have the choice, always go smaller rather than bigger but this mask would be appropriate for this patient here. And I'm gonna connect it to my bag. Airway adjuncts. So the next thing you may wanna consider is having a oral airway in place, especially if the patient is difficult to mask ventilate. When you're choosing the size of an oral airway, you want to make sure you choose one that uh, will be an appropriate size. So you'll go from the angle of the mouth to either the tragus 
or the angle of the jaw. So if I measure here from the angle of the mouth to my tragus, or to the angle of the jaw, it's the same distance. And this one would be an appropriate size for this patient. What you're attempting to do is pull the tongue forward. So you wanna make sure that the hooked part is downward facing. And you'll want to, in order to put this in, you'll open the mouth and assuming that the patient is well anesthetized because if you're putting in an oral airway, you wanna make sure that your patient is either uptunded or has been anesthetized because if you apply an oral airway to a patient that's awake, they're likely to vomit and then aspirate. So to put it in, you're going to open the mouth and then using either a tongue depressor or else your finger to kind of hold the tongue in place. You'll slide this in the corner of the mouth, slide it to the posterior oropharynx, and rotate it into place. A well-placed uh, oral airway is going to sit just at the gums and is actually gonna pull the tongue forward. If you put one that's too small in, you may actually be pushing the tongue back into your posterior oropharynx and you may not be, you may actually be causing more occlusion than without the airway. So you wanna make sure that this is properly applied. If you have a patient that's mildly awake with obstructive symptoms, you can use a nasal airway. And a rule of thumb is that the nasal airway should approximate the patient's pinky finger, so around the same size. And in order to measure the nasal airway, you're gonna go from the nair again to the tragus or the angle of the jaw. So here where this disc is, at the nair, reaches the tragus here or the angle of the jaw. And when you go to put this in, you're gonna to wanna to have some lubricant. You're going to wanna lube up your nasal airway and you'll want to insert it into the patient's nose. And you'll want to do that with just a gentle motion. And you'll do it in the same way that you insert a nasogastric tube. And you'll want to insert it all the way into the disc. Both of these are going to help you bypass any obstruction from the posterior oropharynx and tongue and allow you to mask ventilate a little bit better. Laryngoscopes. The next thing you're gonna to wanna to have ready is you're gonna to wanna to choose a laryngoscope. You're gonna to wanna to choose a handle with a light source that works, as you can see here. This is a fiber optic um, system. And then you're gonna to wanna to choose either a Mac or a Miller blade. A Mac blade is gonna be curved and a Miller blade is gonna be straight. Generally, you should use whatever blade you feel most comfortable using. However, it may be advantageous in patients that are less than two years of age to use a straight blade or a Miller blade. And that's because patients that are younger developmentally have a omega-shaped floppy epiglottis that if you can use the Miller blade to actually lift the epiglottis out of your view, you're gonna actually have a better view of the vocal cords. A Mac blade is used by inserting it along the base of the tongue into the vollecula and pulling upwards. The epiglottis will lie underneath your blade. And if it's large and floppy, you may not be able to pull the epiglottis out of your view. 
And so therefore, in young pediatric patients, a Miller blade may be advantageous. So you'll want to put your blade on and check to make sure your light source works. For this patient, our two-year-old patient, I'm going to be using a Miller 1. Endotracheal tubes. Next, you'll want to choose an endotracheal tube. There is a lot of debate as to whether you should use a cuffed, cu cuffed tube or an uncuffed endotracheal tube. In developmentally, the pediatric airway is more funnel-shaped below the vocal cords, and the narrowest part of a pediatric airway is actually subglottic. And so therefore, on young children, some people choose to use an uncuffed endotracheal tube. However, if you're anticipating higher pressures, or the need to be on ventilation for a long time, or the concern for aspiration, you're likely going to want to choose a tube with a cuff, and you're going to want to make sure that every day you monitor your cuff pressures and you monitor how much cuff inflation you have by checking for a leak and adjusting the air that's in your cuff on a daily basis. So for our patient, I'm going to use the equation of the age in years divided by four plus four, which is two years divided by four, which is 0 0.5 plus four, which equals a 4.5 uncuffed tube would be appropriately sized for this patient. If you want to choose a cuffed endotracheal tube, you should go one half size smaller. So an appropriate size tube might be a 4.0 cuffed endotracheal tube for this patient. We'll also have available one tube that's one size smaller and one size larger than what we're expecting to use for this patient. So I'm planning to use a cuffed endotracheal tube on this patient. So I would have a 3.5 cuffed and a 4.5 cuffed tube also available. Once I've chosen my 4.0 cuffed endotracheal tube, I wanna do two things. I wanna take a syringe and check to make sure that my cuff actually works. So I'll put some air in my syringe insert it into my pilot balloon and administer some air. We can see that the pilot balloon is nice and taut as well as the balloon here. The so it seems as if the cuff is working. I'll remove the air, a very important step, and prepare my tube with a stylet by inserting the stylet in, making sure that the stylet does not go beyond the end of the tube and giving myself a little bit of what's called a hockey stick. So an ability for me to angle my endotracheal tube anteriorly if I need to while performing laryngoscopy. The last thing I want to have available is an end tidal CO2 monitor or an end tidal color change device. In most institutions, um, it's considered gold standard to have an end tidal CO2 monitor in place, um, but you may only have an, a color changing device. You'll want to make sure that if you're using a color change device, that you give at least six breaths after you intubate the patient. Because if you have an esophageal intubation, you may get some CO2 from the stomach, um, but most people will consider that after six breaths, the color change um, 
should not be seen any longer because the CO2 should be washed out of the stomach. The last equation I just wanted, I wanted to mention was the depth of your endotracheal tube. Most people will say that you should insert this endotracheal tube to a depth that's three times what the size of your endotracheal tube is. So for instance, this is a 4.0 cuffed endotracheal tube. So three times four is 12. So when I go to perform laryngoscopy, in a likely appropriate depth, will be a depth of 12 centimeters for this patient. We're going to need to confirm this both with breast sound confirmation as well as a chest x-ray. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.